Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. Tonight we bring you number 45, My Fair Lady. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And tonight we bring you Dana's birthday episode with our very special guests, the rest of the Duncan family. Allison. Hello. Sarah. Hi. And my mother, Christine. Hello. Yes, my two sisters and my mother, respectively. So, Allison is a first-time guest on the show, and for each newbie, they have to answer a set of three questions. So, let's start with just simply tell us a little bit about yourself and why you love movies. My name is Allison Techmeyer. I am a teacher, and I love movies because they take you to a different place and allow you to get outside your own bubble. And what is your favorite movie and why? I have a feeling I know what it is. My favorite movie of all time is Mary Poppins because I love the music behind it, but I also love the feeling it gives you. It gives you that feeling of magic and wonder while also giving you um, a lesson and without you realizing what's all happening. It just weaves it into this magical story. And finally, what makes a good movie for you? You've already kind of hinted at it a little bit. Something that you can really connect to that makes you feel something, that makes you really connect and have that special moment where you can feel like you're part of it or you really get something out of it. All right. Perfect. So without further ado, let's jump into the rest of this movie. As we do each week, let's get to a basic Plot Summary and Recognition In this beloved musical, pompous phonetics professor Henry Higgins, played by Rex Harrison, is so sure of his abilities that he takes it upon himself to transform a cockney working-class girl into someone who can pass for a cultured member of high society. His subject turns out to be the lovely Eliza Doolittle, played by Audrey Hepburn, who agrees to speech lessons to improve her job prospects. Higgins and Eliza clash then form an unlikely bond, one that is threatened by an aristocratic suitor, played by Jeremy Brett. This movie was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Stanley Holloway, who played Alfred P. Doolittle, Supporting Actors for Gladys Cooper, who played Mrs. Higgins, Henry's mother, Adapted Screenplay, and Film Editing. It won for Best Picture, Director for George Cukor, Actor Rex Harrison for his Henry Higgins portrayal, Art Direction, Cinematography, Costume Design, Original Score, and Sound. It is a National Film Registry entrant as of 2018. It made the AFI 100 list in 1998 as the 91st Greatest Film of All Time. And it is an AFI Greatest Musicals Award list recipient as number 8 on the Greatest List of Musicals of All Time in 2006. So, as we do each week... Dad, this is probably a movie that the rest of us have a relationship only through you. So this is going to be a little bit different than we otherwise would, but what is your relationship to this movie? I played in the or in the play itself in high school my senior year. Uh played Jamie who was the um one of the friends of Alfred Doolittle in the bar and um was one of my greatest memories from high school. I'd went out 
or I wanted to go out for the play Man of La Mancha the year before because they wanted me to play Pancho Villa uh, or Pancho or Pancho Villa. Sancho Panza. Yes, Sancho Panza. That's a much different character than Pancho Villa. So <laughs> they wanted me to play Sancho Panza. My parents forbid it. And uh, because it was going to disrupt my schoolwork. So the next year I went out for the play without telling them. And I got the part and was in production for two weeks before they found out. Then afterwards when they saw it and everybody ranted and raved about how I performed. um, Then all of a sudden they were all supportive and they encouraged me to go out for the play. You doing something underhanded and sinister? My Gosh, who could have ever thought? Yeah. So, since none of the rest of us really have much of a different relationship with it, let's go over to what is this movie about. Uh, Okay. Allison, do you want to take a shot? The movie's about not settling for who you are, but trying to better yourself and reaching for more. Because no matter what you're born into, you have the ability to be go beyond that and reach to your full potential. Mom? This movie is about how people treat you also affects how you think about yourself and what you can become. So if you're there's a quote in the movie about if you're treated like a flower girl, that's what you're going to to become. But if people, if you can draw people's respect and you can do something to better yourself and pull yourself up, you can be whomever or whatever you want. I'm going to take it a little bit different, which is, you know, the whole basis of this uh, story is supposed to be class and it's, you know, the low class trying to rise up. The ironic part of this is is that once Eliza becomes, you know, uh, polished enough to fit into the upper crust, into the higher class system of England, it's soon apparent that the higher class, the upper class, is shallow, meaningless, trite, that they have no substance at all whatsoever. All of the characters who are wealthy either are, are are very shallow and self-absorbed or they have no real value other than being in the upper class. My take on it was very similar to that of Dad's. This is my best attempt, but class is more than just speech and presentation of oneself. It is also in how you treat others that defines you. And I, I think there's a lot to be said specifically for her speech when she's at Mrs. Higgins, that Henry might be more sophisticated by normal standards. He may speak better. He may dress better. He may come from more money or background education, but you can't necessarily teach manners. And ultimately, that's what separates class from non-class, no matter where you are in an economic scale. Uh, that takes us to best performance. Uh, Dad, what do you think? Um, actually, I have Alan J. Lerner, the um, and uh, and Frederick Lowe, the writers of the uh, play, uh, 
Lowell actually wrote the screenplay. He did. A, they did a wonderful job of putting together the play after multiple people had attempted and failed to do it. And um, I thought that the script and uh, the comedy in it, as well as the music, uh, made it a vehicle that just allowed star power. So I thought I'd be original in going with the songwriters, Lerner and Lowe, on this one. But it sounds like I am quite unoriginal in this take, because we were talking ahead of the podcast about this. And Allison, you seem to have a similar answer. Yes, I thought that the best part of the movie was also the songwriters because they created these songs that transcend even the movie and talk about real life things as well. But then they also have a way of bringing in the the feelings and they make you feel love and hate. And then there's comedy and pity and all through songs and they're all very different and creative and they really give um, a very good sense of what's going on and a good feeling behind everything within the movie. So, Mom, did you have a different opinion? I did. I actually think that uh, um, that Stanley Holloway, who played her father, um, really brought life to the film. I think he uh, epitomized the the things that she was going through. And I especially liked his, his funny or comical take on the end at the end of the film, when he comes into all of this money and uh, his, his intended makes him get married again with a great song. But I, I just think the subject matter could be very drab and some things just, kind of drag a little bit and then along comes her dad to lighten the mood and I just really enjoy his whole performance Sarah who was your best performer I've kind of gone back and forth from it a couple times between George Cukor and Rex Harrison but I I've pretty soundly settled on Rex Harrison because he you know got the chance to play this part not only on the stage um, but in the movie, he had such a personality about it. He's become kind of this iconic character. And even now, his portrayal in parts is influencing pop culture. There's there's people who still do impressions of him and, you know, people that are just common household names that, you know, grew up watching this movie and watching Rex Harrison and mimicking him. Uh, I had Audrey Hepburn, even though the part was uh, probably not intended for her, simply because, you know, it had been Julie Andrews on the stage, uh, but she just had a presence, and uh, I really thought she did a fine job overall portraying the part. It was a little bit of a reach for her, because as uh, I think at one point Rex Harrison said, when the hell has uh, Audrey Hepburn ever been outside of a of a ballroom, let alone among the common people of England? <laughs> I don't think that she is that epitome. She can't even sing. So, uh, in my opinion, she with they had to find somebody else to do one of the most critical parts of the movie, which is the music of it. And if she can't even do that, how can she be considered one of the best performers when that's one of the key elements? 
Well, she was completely snubbed from the Oscars for this role. I mean, at times I found her to be rather annoying, if I'm being an all at all honest. And the person who did her voice did such a remarkable job. They ended up uh, using her for other work as well. I mean, she was in West Side Story as a dub and in The King and I. She was dubbed, but Rex Harrison ended up winning Best Actor. And frankly, Rex Harrison should have been dubbed too. <laughs> he refused to be. So apparently back in that time, it was very common. I was reading about this earlier. It was very common for anyone, even if you were doing it for yourself, to be dubbed. And um, so like, even so you'd pre-do your own voice and then you just lip sync it during filming. And for some strange reason, but he refused, which is one of the reasons that he's got apparently such large ties and stuff to cover up his mic. Yeah, he all of his stuff was in wireless mics that were in his ties or or whatever else as you alluded to there. It's just he wouldn't be dubbed. He refused. Everyone else in the movie dubbed even themselves. Like, they would record themselves, and then they would be dubbed over the top, except for him. He had a range of four notes. And um, um, when I did the play, we listened to the audio of the, the stage play, uh, the New York recording. And our the orchestra teacher, who was leading the orchestra and the music, said Rex Harrison has a range of four notes. And she even played the four notes. Every Otherwise, he just says them. And it had become so much an epitome of the play that they allowed him to do it anyway. They didn't even offer the part to him to begin with. They originally offered the part to Cary Grant. And Grant said, no, I'm not taking it. You use Rex Harrison. All right. So here's the other part of it. And this is going to get into our... Uh, description on the next one where charismatic comes in audrey hepburn is not on screen for her ability to necessarily act per se it's she has an intangible quality of charisma that is genteel and sucks you in every single time she's on screen i don't care which movie it is we discussed Roman Holiday earlier in a uh, different episode, and she similarly got that quality that's intangible, and that's that alone is why you script her, why you cast her, why you put her in things, because it's the in-between moments. Yes, she can't sing, and yes, she was dubbed, although there are uh, specific strategic spots within the movie where it is actually her as opposed to um, the complete dubbing. So don't take all of the things away from her. But ultimately, there are the moments in between that provide the actress level. I I really don't know how else to put it. Ma, who is your best secondary performer? Well, I, I would have said Rex Harrison. I, I think, yeah, he can't sing either. But thankfully, his, a lot of his singing lines could be spoken and become believable, you know, as he was thinking things out loud. He made a believable character, partly because of his own personality, I think. So he would be my secondary. For very much the same way reason that Mom chose Rex Harrison, 
as I chose Colonel Pickering because um, I loved the play between the two characters. Pickering was softer where um, it needed to be. And kind of one of my favorite pieces from that whole time that he's on screen is his answers to uh, a hymn to a man and him him just answering Rex Harrison as he's speaking, you know, why can't a woman be like a man? So, for my best secondary performer, I went with George Cukor. He's been around a lot of big projects over the history of cinema. He was one of, like, four directors in Gone with the Wind. Uh, he was uh, on our uh, Philadelphia Story episode that we just released a couple of weeks ago. And... I think it's incredibly difficult, and we don't often give it enough credit. We think of all of the things that go into a musical, and we kind of dismiss uh, a lot of the acting, usually, that goes in, because more of it seems to be performance art, uh, a lot of song and dance, uh, especially if you look at some of the, the Gene Kelly movies, like An American in Paris, seems to be more of a dance number than it is actually a, a story or a plot line for the majority of it. And it, it drags for me a little bit in that, but that's a different episode at a different time. The The point being that it's still incredibly difficult to piece together and adequately do a musical. Now, he had something to fall back on. There's the stage show, whereas some of these musicals were written specifically for film. So he had at least an example to use a, as part of that, but from all of the uh, song and dance numbers to getting the best out of your actors. And then there's always the fact that most of the critics that are going to be seeing this film have that comparison point as well. And if you don't live up to the same greatness as what the musical had basically done to that point, I mean, I think it was uh, one of the most popular up to that point, you're going to be negatively influenced. And I, I think he deserves recognition for the difficulty of the job that was before him. Most charismatic award. Uh, Dad, what did you have down? Um, Audrey Hepburn. I did Jeez. as well. So let's pause on yep. that. Who else had Audrey Hepburn? Me. Okay. Sarah, who did you have down? I had Rex Harrison. Okay. And Allison, what did you have? I have the father, Mr. Doolittle. All right. So let's go to the... Stanley Holloway and Alfred P. Doolittle for a second. I'll give you first crack at it, Allison. Why did you think he was extra charismatic in this one? I thought that every time he came on screen, kind of going back to Mom's comments earlier, he just added a light and an energy to it whenever there was starting to get a little serious or a little too much. And he really just drew you in and made you, like, feel for him. Even in, like, things where he's like, oh, my, I have to get married. Oh, woe is me. It's like you felt that and you just, like, you were laughing and having fun along with him and feeling everything he was. And he just made it so much, so personable and made you really enjoy those moments. Sarah, why did you go with Rex Harrison? I went with Rex Harrison because automatically from the first song of why can't the English he kind of just pulls you in and you you are laughing along with him as the song goes on and he just you you feel pulled into the story of 
you know, all of these different things. And even when he's making jokes and going through this, he just has this way about him that just was fun. It was just fun to watch. I have a problem with not just Harrison, but the the character of Higgins in general. I think it's one of the more well-crafted antagonists in theater. And it's kind of undone because he becomes somewhat of a second hero in the end in a way that I don't think that Lerner and Lowe necessarily intended by changing the ending from Pygmalion, but it's something we're going to get to here in in remaining questions. I just... He's always been a very complicated character in the story for me, and he's by far the most complicated aged figure. But I, I, I guess he's I don't want to. He's chauvinistic and rude. I, he's, I don't yes. know how that's charismatic. <laughs> that is not by any means he's charismatic. Bad. That he, was part of what Shaw was trying to get across. Sarah, let he's Allison so pompous, talk. and he's always like, "I'm better than everybody else." And he likes to put himself on this pedestal and look down on everybody else. And he's just crass. And I don't think he's got any care. Yes, he may make you laugh at certain moments. But his personality is just so off-putting that I don't think he's at all charismatic. Charismatic is somebody who draws you in and makes you love them and makes you feel those things. Well, and then in the ending scene where he comes in from the big gala and, you know, is all puffed up and proud of himself and completely forgets the fact that, you know, Eliza worked so hard to be there, too. It just shows his personality and he's just, I don't know, I just don't like, I just have no care for him whatsoever. When he throws his hat over his eyes and he's like, oh, go get me. So this and it's just like to the very last minute he doesn't think about anybody but himself and he does not draw you in and make you want to be his friend or anything. Depends on what you define as charismatic. Harrison exemplified the character and it does pop off the page. To that extent, it's a memorable performance. You will always link uh, Rex Harrison and uh, the character is one and the same and it is really a defining moment for him as an actor. So to that extent, if that's what you define as charismatic, then yes, I agree. Harrison and the character became one and the same. To that extent, if that's your definition of charismatic, it was. Although there's a reason why Harrison is portrayed throughout the entire play in brown tweed because there was nothing spectacular about him. He was kind of supposed to be a type of fixture within the room, more or less, who was more uh, about a, a statement of society in general than an individual. So to that extent, I don't think he was charismatic. There were other people that were much more charismatic, because I would go with my pick, which was Hepburn, and I would go with Stanley Holloway before I would go with Rex Harrison for that reason. Well, I don't want to seem like we're just ganging on on Sarah on this one. I I just think we all just generally disagree. I mean, all right, I'll just jump into mine before it it further devolves, but 
for me, it was Audrey Hepburn, and it was for a lot of the, the intangible qualities that I mentioned before. Mom, did you seem to agree on that? I did, and I liked the way that she, you could, like what Allison was talking about with, with, um, with charisma, she draws you in and she she shows you her feelings and and especially at the end of the film when she gets so angry with him and throws his slippers at him and it just like all all of her feeling during the entire movie culminates in that moment and i and she shows her true colors and what she's really made of and the fact that as sarah said before she has a voice um, and she wants to be heard now. So, and then I also like the way that she's able to, you know, pick up that, that flower girl accent and then over the course of the entire film, change it into her proper English. Um, so remembering all of those things and where they're all at also showed a lot of character. And I just enjoy her performance let's just take a quick break and we will be right back welcome back let's jump into best scene all right so um mom let's give you the first nominee what do you think was inclusion worthy on best scene i think where she's in the little room practicing her vowels and and he tells her she has to go back and practice and she gets really angry. Of course, it leads to the song, Just You Wait. I I love, li- for whatever reason, listening to her um, do those vowels. And it's like, through those, she's transforming herself. All right, Dad, what's your first nominee? Uh, the, um, the breakthrough scene. The um, point where she finally says her... Uh, or enunciates correctly to, leading into the song The Rain in Spain. I enjoy that because I think it really is the moment in time where the it's kind of like the apex of the play because up till then it's building to that point and then from there on it shows what happens once she's achieved that certain level that she is now able to articulate herself into the higher classes and now she can start moving about the higher classes and exposing them for the shallow uh, baseless class that they are well that's basically the climax of the first act more or less uh there's a little bit after that obviously that we're going to get to here in a second but you know that that's clearly at the apex there like you mentioned All right, Sarah, what's your first nominee? My first nominee is the scene right when they come back from the ball, or the gala, if you will. Um, And she's just standing in the background, and they're both going on and on, and she's just waiting to be acknowledged, hoping that somebody says something that, you know, makes her. And I think that kind of just shows what she feels in that moment, is just to watch her kind of hiding in there and I really personally I think that was very well done I'm going to go with the embassy ball I think there are a lot of technical things that you could look for with the costuming 
and the amount of people, the amount of extras that are clearly necessary in that. But I'm going to focus on one particular aspect of this scene, and it happens to be the uh, knockoff Hungarian uh, speech expert and the kind of... I knew of, you were going to say that. <laughs> right. It's the back and forth kind of playful nature of the entire endeavor where at one point you think Higgins is trying to deflect and hide her from him in order to not be exposed. And then all of a sudden he plays this um, surprising moment of letting her near him and uh, that, oh, suddenly there might be this this uh, problem only to get a um, rather deep and hearty laugh from Higgins in the end which obviously signals that they fooled everybody, but you don't get the full answer for a, another scene. That being said, I think there's so many interplays and inner workings to how the choreography, not just from uh, a dance perspective, because there is a lot of that in the scene, but the two-step that you're playing between uh, Pickering and Mrs. Higgins, then Henry, then the Hungarian translator, to then uh, when she's taken to uh, dance with the prince, and all of those little things that are going back and forth and the things that could be off very easily seem to work in a very grandiose way and in a way that gives you the payoff of what this bet and the entire first act has been. Because realistically, you've been building probably about three quarters of the movie up to this point. And to have that level of a payoff in that moment is rewarding to the viewer and to the audience generally. Uh, Ma, what is your next one to uh, nominate? I want to say when the father, uh, he comes to uh, visit after a few days and to the Higgins um, place and tries to see what he can get out of the whole scenario by, by saying, you know, in essence ruining my daughter's virtue. So you owe me, even though the two of them hadn't spoken for quite some time, it was obvious that they didn't have a close relationship, but he was going to use this situation and the comedy that happens there or when they say, oh, well, just go, you know, take her home. Oh, well, no, wait a minute. No, wait a minute. And I just thought that was, it was very well played. It was very well written and smartly done. There's a lot of subtext and characterization that goes into that, that you kind of just touched the surface on a little bit. I would encourage anybody to kind of, that is one of the few dialogue moments of this movie where there's really some sparring between a couple of characters as he really holds his own in in playing around with Pickering and with Higgins at the same time and I ultimately uh, I'll kind of um, undercut myself a little bit but that's going to be my nominee for favorite scene I nicknamed it Alfred P. Doolittle moral scholar <laughs> yeah so I don't want to confuse the audience. Allison is still with us. However, she didn't feel that uh, she was adequately prepared to nominate any for best scene. So that being said, Dad, what is your next, next nominee? Um, while Eliza is out trying to go around and goes back to her old neighborhood, she runs into her dad, who then announces that he is now received a uh, thousand pounds or four thousand four thousand pounds a year 
stipend uh, as a result of Higgins, and now he's getting married, and that leads ultimately to the whole uh, musical number, I'm getting married in the morning. I really like that scene because, again, it 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 shows the 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 moral contrast because at the same time that he's like complaining about how all of a sudden he had before when he was poor he had nobody that was interested in him now he's got 50 people hanging around him not one of them has an income so basically the mooch that he was he now has all of these people around him but when he's told well just don't take the money well i can't do that because you know after all so it just it, it's just the uh almost a level of hypocrisy um that uh, is very common to most people that they they can't see themselves in a uh a rational light they can't step back and see who they are and what they're doing I'll even take it a slight step further there are two sides to his character, and he has two main songs, the first of which being with a little bit of luck. Well, he ends up into one of the luckiest situations of all time. A letter is written on his behalf, finding him to be one of the best moral scholars, obviously as a joke, and then he lucks into this situation where all of a sudden he's wealthy and his life is turned around, and he sees that as a net negative, not a net positive even though that's how his character was defined to begin with. So it just is a distinct aspect of his character that uh, we get that si- both sides of him that certainly is never going to be completely happy. All right, Sarah, what did you have as your second nominee? Oddly enough, my scene takes place right around Dad's, um, and it's the scene where she goes back to the flower market and she's walking around trying to see if somebody notices her and slowly discovers that she no longer belongs there. I really liked that because, you know, you kind of get the feel for that for her in this moment. She no longer uh, feels like she belongs anywhere because she doesn't belong with the upper class Um, or she feels like she doesn't in that moment. She doesn't quite fit in there, but she's also so far out of the place that she grew up and everything that she became accustomed to for her entire life. And so she's trying to see if, you know, she could go back to her friends and her home and, you know, and nobody even recognizes her. And it's kind of this defining moment of, okay, she needs to rediscover who she is. All right, for my second and final nominee, I'm going to go with uh, the Ascot Raceway. I think there are many scenes to be included, but I I think this is one that needed to be. So since none of you took it as an opportunity, I think this is a uh, great second act starter in that we feel like, especially after the first act, and if you truly do the intermission like they put in all of these musical films uh, to give it kind of that theater feel, that... We've reached a certain point, kind of the one that Dad mentioned, the rain in Spain moment, where she's had this breakthrough, and we think that she's going to be more refined, and that we've turned this corner. And yet, like in a lot of situations, even when you get to a certain bit of refinement, 
uh, the underpinnings are still there. You get a little bit of energy or stress or anxiety, the cracks begin to show. And she gets excited in a one particular moment, all of a sudden to burst out in her cockney yet again and show who she truly is and embarrass both Higgins and Pickering in that moment. And yet, it's the one thing where uh, you get this different lifeline of the second half of the movie where Freddy is instantly attracted and in love with her despite these moments and these cracks because he loves her despite those things. He can see something uh, beyond that where it's showing, especially in the original version of the play, that he sees beyond her class as being uh, the outward, what's the, the trappings of her as opposed to what's underneath. And ultimately it's the thing that prevents Higgins from getting her in the original version. All right. So uh, out of these, and yes, Allison, we will be asking you for your opinion on this one. Uh, what do you think is the best scene? Let's start with my, um, I, well, I love the whole horse race thing. I'm going to bring that up as, as in my indelible moment, but truly I think the end of the film that Sarah brought up with the, where she's just sitting and waiting for someone to acknowledge her. And then he asks her for his slippers and she throws them. I think that's the best. Sarah. My favorite scene uh, is not favorite. My favorite best. Oh, for best scene. I thought I didn't think we were voting on best scene. I thought we had moved. I'm sticking uh, with best scene as being where she goes back home and isn't recognized. Best scene to me was probably the throwing the slippers at him, and it, because he didn't acknowledge her. Just because it's the real turning point, it's like she's finally trying to make him see her and that she has feelings. And he just looks at her like, what? I didn't realize that what I had done was wrong. You're crazy for that. And it's like the turning point of things. All right. Dad, what do you think was the best scene? I uh, I love this scene with Doolittle and uh, Pickering and uh, Higgins um, in his study where he's trying to um, exhort, extort a little bit of cash. So Alfred P. Doolittle, really moral kind scholar? Of, yes, I think it really kind of lays bare the whole uh, fallacy that is the caste system. Okay, I'm gonna go with the I'm gonna go with the embassy ball. I just think it was one of the more complicated scenes, especially because I nominated Qcor as a director, and there are so many different elements to how to uh, put together that scene. Uh, all of the the small technical intricacies that I kind of skipped over when I, I nominated it before, but also just the level of difficulty between the actors and doing that successfully. Uh, I just think it, it probably from a technical and uh, critical standpoint might be the best. All right. Uh, favorite scene. I already revealed mine as uh, dad's uh, what dad nominated for best scene, the Alfred P. Doolittle moral scholar scene. But uh, dad, what was your favorite scene? 
really my favorite scene was probably the Ascot Ball or the the horse race itself. Or uh, excuse me, I, if I Ascot Raceway. It's, it's Ascot, which is the race racetrack. I think it kind of shows the the rawness of her yet, and this the shallowness of of uh, the upper class because they're willing because she they think she's upper class and she says things that are very common they're willing to look the other way because they just assume when Higgins says oh this is the new small talk and they go oh, oh this is interesting the new small talk yes those that took or that did her or that uh, took her hat did her in so anyway i just like that for that reason mom favorite scene um again the one at the end where she is coming to terms with who she is and the fact she doesn't fit in and and he wants her to kind of play the servant and she throws the shoes at him and um i just i really i love that scene just because it's the real pivotal point in her self-growth Sarah, what was your favorite? Mine was also the Ascot races, though mine is uh, a little bit after uh, what Dad was talking about. I really liked that scene where they all go down to watch the horses actually race past, and she just kind of breaks in that moment because, you know, as we all do when we get under intense pressure or get overly excited or animated about something, we kind of just have that moment where we kind of snap into ourselves. And I, I really, that resonated with me, and it also made me laugh. And Allison, what did you think, or what is your favorite scene? I have two. My first one is when he's singing about women, and he's like, um, why can't women be more like men? And I don't want a woman in my life. I'm just going to be a bachelor forever. And I'm like, famous last words. You just knew from then on that something was going to happen. And then I like the, at, towards the end, um, when after she's thrown the slippers and she's left and everything, he comes looking for her and she puts him down several notches by saying, life will go on without you. Like, you don't need, or I don't need you. Everything will just continue the same without you. And, you know, you you don't control everything, and you need to treat people better, and life will go on. All right. Now, I know you had some difficulty with this, and I will try and phrase it as best as I can. But when you basically close your eyes and somebody mentions the My Fair Lady, what is your immediate thought, the most indelible moment to you? I think it must be when she sings that Loverly song, because it's been stuck in my head for two days now. <laughs> so I think that it's just because it's all the things she wanted, and it's just showing where she's coming from. And then, you know, it's just... It's her, and then when she goes back and nobody recognizes her and they're playing that same song, it's just, it shows where she's come from, and that contrast between the two it, with that same song. Well, and the fact that a lot of the things that she's asking for are very simple pleasures 
They are, and it's just you feel for her. You like you just want her to get them, and then when she does get them later, and they're not everything she had hoped for, you just you feel for her. And I just love that song because it's catchy, but it also just really sets things up for the movie. It just really starts everything going. All right, Sarah, what did you have as your most indelible moment? I actually have her entrance in in the Ascot races is because you can actually just tell that they purposefully tried to blend her in, but at the same time kind of stand her out um, with the way that the dress is made, with, you know, the accent colors that nobody else had. You can just kind of see she's trying to blend in, but even when she blends in, she stands out. Mom, what was your most indelible moment? As she enters the very top of the stairs for the night at the ball, and everybody kind of does a, (gasps) you know, um, because she's absolutely stunning and um, walks down. It's like, I made it. This is it. This is the pinnacle of the success. I think any movie that has that moment where the girl's standing at the top of the stairs and everyone looks at her is just like, Something special about those, like, every, no matter how many times they use it in a movie, it's still, you always are like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> I so always when find I think of the movie, that I scene see has that Zach Galifianakis, I find that to be indelible. <laughs> <laughs> Dad, what was your most indelible moment that is non-Zach Galifianakis related? <laughs> You know, I, there's a certain list of films where there's a line that you could say it, and 90% of the general public will go, oh, that's from X. The rain in Spain falls mainly on the plain. All you have to do is say that, and I will bet that 80 to 90% of the public will immediately know My Fair Lady. I'd be willing to take that bet because I have... Uh, Over the age uh, of 35, maybe. <laughs> no, not even that. There are a lot of people that are not theater nerds like kind of we have been and exposed to a lot of culture. So To be honest, I didn't even know that that's before. where that came from. I've heard that line forever my whole life, but I didn't even know it came from that movie until we watched it. Same. <sighs> All right. Anyway, all right, so for my most indelible moment, it's the end. Eliza comes back. And it's because it doesn't fit. No, it It, doesn't. There is absolutely no reason. They they try and shoehorn it in at the end, but there is absolutely no reason that she would come back. Harrison has provided nothing in his dialogue. He has uh, disgraced himself royally multiple times over, and... Unless she, I don't know, takes on him as a redeemable project somehow, which seems uh, irrational at best, uh, given his age, and you can't teach an old dog new tricks in that particular regard. Uh, I just, it makes no sense for where the script, the plot, the story has been leading, and it, it seems like an off moment. So for as many times as I watched this movie... I just wait for the moment where she he's just kind of left to his own devices and in his own depression instead of him immediately falling back to his 
character that, okay, I can rest on my laurels. Where are my slippers? And it, it just, it irks me every single time. I said that the other night when we all collectively watched it. But that's going to lead us into uh, just another quick commercial break before we get to best lines and best song. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back, and let's jump into best line. So uh, let's give our first nominee to Sarah. Okay, um, my favorite uh, is, uh, well, you see, the great secret, Eliza, is not a question of good or bad manners or any particular sort of manners, but having the same manner for all human souls. The question is not whether I treat you rudely, but whether you've ever heard me treat anyone else better. I think it really captures the essence of that character. I mean, he's he's not just rude to her in general, he's rude to everyone. And so it's just part of his personality. And I think it also epitomizes that he kind of, this his pompous nature. It's it brings us back to that last uh scene where, you know, she's or that Apex, apex kind of scene where you know he's pompously strutting around the house praising himself and you know she's being completely ignored in the back mom what did you have down as a best line nominee i have the difference between a lady and a flower girl is not how she behaves but how she's treated all right allison did you have one down i have they can still rule land without you. Windsor Castle will stand without you. And without much ado, we can all muddle through without you. <laughs> I just like that she's trying to put him in his place. Like, you're not as great as you think you are. Uh, Dad, what do you have as your first nominee? Well, <clears throat> I have to do a little bit of setup. It's Pickering. I'll have you know, Doolittle, that Mr. Higgins' intentions are entirely honorable. Doolittle, of course they are, Governor. If I, if I thought they weren't, I'd ask 50. Higgins, you mean you'd sell your daughter for 50 pounds? Pickering, have you no morals, man? No, no, I can't afford them, Governor. Neither could you if you were as poor as me. So it's the last line that's ultimately my favorite. There are my uh, great quote. So, all right, I'm gonna start off with one that's a, a little bit more comical. But Pickering, are you a man of good character where women women are concerned? Higgins, have you ever met a man of good character where women are concerned? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, did anyone have a second nominee? Um, it's when um, Eliza is talking to Professor Higgins and she says, well, you have my voice on your gramophone. When you feel lonely without me, you can turn it on. It has no feelings that you can hurt. And he replies, but I can't turn your soul on. Sarah, what did you have? Um, I can do without anyone. I have my own soul, my own spark of divine fire. There, that that to me epitomizes that he's trying to tell himself that despite everything, that he still can go back to who he was and he'll be okay, even though he knows he won't, because she has brought life and light and fun 
uh, for lack of a better word, into his life. And he, he's trying to convince he, himself that he has that even without her. Allison, did you have a second nominee? I did not. I didn't know I could have two nominees. I did not read right. it, apparently. That's all right. Dad? Um, no, I, I, I have several, but I, I think I'll just go with what I have and keep it a little simpler. Yeah, I think I would be about the same. I, I have a few that uh, the rest of you have mentioned, but uh, I'll just do a quick one. So, uh, come on, Dover, move your bloomin' arse. I think that one was one that uh, we kind of mentioned before the uh, video turned on. But the other one, and I think this is indicative of what he thought he was entering in as an agreement ahead of time before we got to the point where, obviously, the circumstances have changed. Eliza's changed quite a bit. He's changed quite a bit. But going back to where the original bet and the agreement was in place... Uh, Higgins outlining the agreement. Eliza, you are to stay here for the next six months learning to speak beautifully, like a lady in a florist shop. At the end of six months, you will be taken to an embassy ball in a carriage, beautifully dressed. If the king finds out you are not a lady, you will be taken to the Tower of London, where your head will be cut off as a warning to other presumptuous flower girls. If you are not found out, you shall be given a present of, uh, seven and six to start life with in a lady shop. If you refuse this offer, you will be the most ungrateful, wicked girl, and the angels will weep for you. All right. So out of those, uh, Mom, what did you think the best line was? Well, like I said, I still love the line about the difference between a lady and a flower girl is not how she behaves, but how she's treated. Uh, Sarah. I am going to go with Dad because... Uh, um, and uh, the Alfred Doolittle morals. That's my line as well. I think that really, if you were as poor as me, you couldn't afford them. Um, that just <clears throat> so much <laughs> is like the summary of um, most of my extended family. Uh, Allison, what did you have down for best line? I would probably say just. Based on romantic stuff, I, the best one is where he says he can't, she, he just can't turn on her soul. I think that's just very romantic and very, like, it's the one time he opens up a little bit and shows how he feels. All right, so this is a new category to us. This is the first musical we have covered on the show. We have not had a chance to do best song to this point. So I'm just going to give you a list of the ones that I wrote down more or less and you from that if you think i've missed any you can get on me after the fact but let's start with on the street where you live uh number two i could have danced all night three with a little bit of luck four just you wait five the rain in spain Six, get me to the church on time. Uh, and seven, wouldn't it be loverly? Are there any that I missed that you would have put on? Why can't the English and a hymn to him? Uh, yeah, a hymn to him. 
Why can't a woman be more like a man? I've grown accustomed to her face. So I have a feeling we're all going to nominate different ones. So on that note, let's start with Sarah. What for you was the best song? Well, as someone who's studied language a lot, I I would say the best song is a hymn to him. I think I think it's just so indicative of the character and I love the banter between the two characters as he's calling, you know, his friend trying to find Eliza and he's just ranting to his buddy sitting there, you know, why can't a woman be more like a man? You know, and it's it's I'm sure every man has had this thought at one point or another. Why can't she just say what she means? Uh, that's actually a Justin Bieber song there, Sarah. Anyway, uh, Dad, what did you have as best song? Well, it's more of a sentimental why it's my best song, which is um, I'm Getting Married in the Morning. Um, and that's because... The my cohort who played the other friend of uh, Doolittle, he and I had to harmonize the first part to lead the chorus into and Doolittle into the song, which started, which is just a few more hours. It's all the time you've got. So we practiced that for hours, and so to this day. I can still remember all of the attempts we had to try to get it to harmonize and to do it correctly. And so, from a sentimental point of view, that's my favorite, or that's the, the song that I'm going to rate. Well, I have to toss up between two. I really do. Because when I think of this movie, I think of The Rain in Spain. But the other song that, to me, or speaks better to me, and I think is more clear for the movie is wouldn't it be loverly because she's talking about how she is and how she would like it to be, you know, with her warm hands and food in her stomach. And wouldn't that just be wonderful? And that's what she was going to end up with. And, and so I think that wouldn't it be loverly is a better song. All right, Allison, what do you think? I chose Wouldn't It Be Loverly because I think it really foreshadows what's to come. And then when they play it again later when she comes back, it's that feeling like I got what I wanted, even though it was simple and easy and, you know, I deserve it. Is this real? You know, nobody recognizes me. And, you know, the way that they contrast with that song in the two different areas it just really goes to show, wrap up the whole movie. It really foreshadows what's going to happen, and then at the end it really brings it all home again. And uh, I'm going to go with On the Street Where You Live. I think that one, if any of them, has probably transcended the musical the most, and it's because of uh, the amount of remakes it's done. But it's most famous for being a Dean Martin song that was popularized. So I, I think I'll, I'll go with that one because of the legs it's had outside of the musical and that it's got a tangible effect. But it's also just one that I've often had in my head and uh, ultimately is just a favorite of mine. All right, let us go to our patented Stanley rubric. All right, uh, first category is legacy. And uh, since we have a newbie on the uh, show, 
this is going to be a little bit more complicated. So I'm going to start with some of these categories so we can kind of uh, have a better discussion of the whole thing. But I went with a 7.5. It is faded by comparison to several other musicals of the time. I think West Side Story is a little bit more famous, even though I think there are more songs from this one that are more popularly known. It's definitely paled in comparison to The Sound of Music. And I, I think it's kind of one of the more forgotten ones, even though it was certainly popular in its time. Uh, again, I think a couple of the songs have kind of transcended or are um, popularly remembered, but I don't know if anybody attributes these to the film itself. Because, I mean, as as both of my sisters already put it, they knew songs from this movie but didn't necessarily know that they were part of that or that they were from this movie or the this musical necessarily. So I think this movie has a very classical feel, but it's not one that people readily know when you the uh, name pops up or that is, is something front of mind, particularly in a younger crowd where it's got a lasting legacy or impact in the same way that some of these other classic Hollywood films have been. I also want to highlight the fact that uh, this is an a movie that we had to make so many different efforts to try and find the movie in our own collection because it's not on any streamer. I think a movie finds legs sometimes, uh, one of these classics, by being on a streaming service of some variety. So people have the availability to actually go see these. And it's one of the things that I've really liked about HBO Max this year is they have their TCM uh, section of their channel or their streaming service that you can go and watch a lot of these old classic movies, and these are at least readily available to the population at large. It would be much nicer had they uh, done this with maybe Netflix, which more people have, but unfortunately, because uh, it's not on a streamer, I have a feeling that they didn't buy it specifically because uh, I don't think they think there would be an audience for this, and I, I'm not sure that's correct because they do have several of the other musicals of the time available on some of these places. So ultimately, I think this has a higher legacy, but it has to be knocked back a couple of points for the points that I made. So, uh, Dad, what do you have down for legacy? I had eight. It doesn't have nearly the legs that um, it should. I mean, for the most part, when you say Oscar and Hammerstein, um, people automatically know who you're talking about. You talk about Lerner and Lowe, and people are like, who? So it doesn't carry the same resonance for that reason, the origins of it. So I went with an eight for that reason. So just to clarify, he means Rodgers and Hammerstein? Yeah, that's, that's what, what I was say. just trying to tell him. You said Oscar and Hammerstein. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I missed so, yes. Uh, not to be a grouch, but Oscar was not the right one there. Well, it's Oscar Hammerstein, <laughs> so yes. Right. Okay. And anyway, Sarah, what is your legacy score? I had a seven. I, I you know, I've heard about this movie growing up for, for years, not even just from in the family, but it's brought up, you know, in my classes what I would take these literature classes and they we would always talk about it in relation to Pygmalion and stories like that it's just 
I've never had the chance to actually get to see it myself. And so I did knock it back a couple points because, you know, it's it's not the same way that you think of, like, those great classic films like Roman Holiday or, you know, other uh, movies like that. Um, but it does make the list. All right. Allison. I give it a three because as influential as it was at its time, it has very much faded. The play is still done today, but the movie, I can guarantee that the majority of people under the age of 35 have never seen it and didn't even probably even realize it was a movie. And if they did, they're like, eh, whatever. So I think that it's definitely lost a lot of its significance as time continues, which makes it, in my opinion, a lot, is the legacy is fading as people just aren't giving it the credit it, you know, once had. Mom, you're the last one. What do you think? As much as I love this film and I love the play, I think that um, Allison has some good points, and I I give it a five um, simply because, yeah, you can't find it. Um, it's still done in as a high school musical occasionally, but not as much as Oklahoma. You know, everybody knows Oklahoma, and people know the music but they don't know where it came from. And so I gave it a five. All right. So that puts us at an average for 6.1 for the legacy. Impact significance. I gave it a six and a half. Uh, high levels of recognition during its time. I mean, we went through the uh, awards list at the time, and it, it's enormous. Uh, I mean, this thing got nominated for just about every award that they had. Now, mind you, that part of it was there were a lot of technical awards due to the musical nature of things. Uh, they got some cinematography, costuming, um, musical score, uh, that type of thing. But I, I think that uh, it also had uh, a few other of the bigger categories. It won Best Director, it won Best Actor, uh, got nominated for Best Supporting Actor and Supporting Actress. So I, I think that this was um, impactful in the... Uh, awards race, but that's not always indicative of everything else. I do. I didn't find the exact uh, placement within the year as to what its box office numbers were, but I did see that it did well. This was also one of the most, ex I think it was the most expensive movie up to that point as far as budgeting. I think it was a, a total of $17 million spent in order to do this movie, and I think it got most of its run back. But ultimately, I, I find this to be uh, this was a period of a lot of musicals winning Oscars at this point. We had Oliver a couple of years after this. This was right before Sound of Music the, the following year. We had just come off of uh, Gigi and the uh, West Side Story as well. So I, I think it kind of gets lost in this series where uh, we had quite a few of them within about a 15-year span or, or such uh, that had a lot of things very similar to this. And you could take this as kind of a, a period within that, but that doesn't mean that it stands out or has any uh, staying power. So, uh, Dad, what do you think? I had a 7.5. I mean, the whole run of movies that were, you know, musical movies were based upon plays, which is considered the golden age of Broadway, that 1950s era where there were just huge, huge, uh, impactful plays and musicals going on uh, on Broadway at the time. To be in New York in that night in the 1950s 
was kind of a special place, uh, special situation. And the movies, it just kind of exemplifies what took place about five to ten years before. So <clears throat> I think it reflects more of that period than it does of the early 60s. I think that they uh, started to fade in their popularity because they became what would be considered more quaint. As society changed and things moved along, uh, it just became more likely that, um, you know, this was a symbol of bygone era more than what was going on in the 1960s. Mom, what do you think? I have it as a seven, just because the the quotes or some of the things that are said and the music still exists now. So there was still an impact, even if the performance itself um, has faded or has been forgotten some. Sarah? I actually had an eight on this um, because of not only the awards, this was the highest grossing film this studio had ever produced at the time. Um, And on top of that, um, eight of these songs made it onto the Billboard uh, Top 100 at that time. I mean, that's that's a huge impact on, you know, culture at that given moment. And, you know, the, the songs from these, we still know them, whether or not we know that they're attached to this movie necessarily, but it's, it's still very well written. It's still stuff we're all familiar with. It's quotes that just... We know them. We might not know what necessarily where they come from, but we do know them. And so I picked eight. Uh, Allison, what did you have down? I will start off by saying that I really don't know about the time period. I really don't know much. The only thing I do know about that time period is Mary Poppins. We'll throw that out there to start with. I gave it a six because it did create quite a stir when... um, they replaced Julie Andrews and some of the other ass, uh, characters and stuff about that. I know people talked about it, and we're still talking about it today on how that all went down. It did win a lot of awards, but I think that there were several other movies within that five years right after it that did outshine it and kind of took away a lot of its significance. All right, so that averages down to a seven. Uh, novelty, this is a difficult one, but Sarah, you have a, a bit of um, knowledge of this, the show. Uh, what did you think for novelty? Well, that was kind of a difficult one for me, and based purely on the fact that the play that came before it is based on a really old um, myth. And so, you know, it wasn't necessarily novel, but they did do an interesting spin on it. And so I gave it a seven because it wasn't super new and interesting, but they did do a completely unique spin and they even changed it from the original Pygmalion play, which came out by Bernard (coughs) Shaw in uh, the 1900s. Dad, what did you think? I had 7.5 based on the novelty primarily because it had been attempted by so many different uh, musical teams to try to convert Pygmalion into a musical, um, and was difficult. So to that extent, they did a combination of more serious songs with uh, lighter comedic songs, and the mix 
is what I found to be fairly no, uh, novel. Um, you didn't find that where there was such wide variety of musical uh, songs or musical scores in the same play. Yeah, I, I had a difficulty with uh, giving it too much credit for any of the novelty of the, the subject material, given that it, it's based on a play that was uh, 50 years preceding it. But, Mom, what did you think? Uh, well, I gave it a six and a half because there were shows that came right around that time. But um, the music is catchy. We all talked about how some of the songs continued to resonate in our head um, after long after we watched it. And even the fact that they allowed Rex Harrison to speak some of his singing parts was different than say, you know, something that may have had more operatic music. It was something a little new. So I gave it a six and a half. I'm thinking I'm a much harsher critic than the rest of you. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> I gave it a four because I think, yes, it had some interesting filmography, but, I mean, I a lot of the singers were dubbed. They didn't do a lot of their own work. Um, it was set in the time period where, which was good for it, but they didn't really play into that. Like it could have been in any time period the way they had it written. Like it didn't matter. And so it didn't really push any of the historical things. Um, yeah, there was a little bit of comedy to it, but I don't think it added any new comedy that wasn't already existing at that time. The costumes were really nice, but they weren't historically accurate. They were very historically 1960s. So they, they took the idea of the 1910s and they mixed it with the 60s to create this new blend of costumes that was not exactly, you know, I mean, it looks nice and all that, but it wasn't accurate. They weren't trying to portray any specific thing. Um, I know that the play, when it originally came out, definitely pushed some boundaries, but I think that the play was out for such a long time before the movie was that the play had more of an impact than the movie. I think I tend to agree with a lot of the points that have already been made that, uh, and I have kind of already alluded to this, but I, I can't give it a whole lot of credit for its subject material, which is usually what we do for novelty. Um, I don't think it created any new way of doing anything. There wasn't anything technical. A lot of this was shared. We were being uh, adapted to musicals in a lot of ways. The one place that I might give it a little bit of credit for is being able to adapt uh, something else from a, a different source material and turn it into a musical. And I think this is kind of the birth of, uh, well, you know, even to be said uh, that I, I don't, now that I'm thinking about it, I, I don't think that's even credit worthy because West Side Story is basically just a modern retelling of Romeo and Juliet turned into a musical. So even from that standpoint, it, I, I think it's probably uh, not particularly novel. So uh, the one area that you could give it credit for, then uh, I would say is probably the music. But because it was based on something else that uh, was probably a little bit more audacious at the time it came out, I had to knock it down, so the music only brings it up so far. I'm going to give it a 6, and that's going to average us out to a 6.2 for novelty. All right, let's go classicness. Now, this is probably our most difficult category to do because we've added so many layers to it uh, over time. Uh, Mom, what did you have for classicness? I 
think that this would be an eight. I think that this is something that defies history. I think because of how I feel about the the meaning of it as far as um, trying to treat people properly and they become what you treat them like is just, I mean, it just is. So um, I have a seven and a half. Um, I gave it a five just because I think that in today's society, a movie like this is not, like, coming from a more younger generation, a lot of people my age or younger than me are going to watch it and go, oh my goodness, I can't believe that they let this happen. Or, you know, some of the political correctness of it is going to take that we see nowadays that, you know, we didn't, they didn't have to think about back then, but I think that it just, it kind of takes away some of it. But I do think that there is a lot to it that it still is a good movie. It got great music, things to its benefit. I just think that as time is now progressing, it is starting to fade. I'm going to go in the opposite direction. I I don't mean to be necessarily contrarian, but the part that didn't work for you is the part that worked for me. I understand what you're saying, and it's a valid point that it's less relatable the farther we get away from the original Bernard Shaw um, era, because that was relatable at the time. But I think the heart of this story, you could very easily adapt it. I mean, we've had other, uh, famously, there was a Freddie Prince Jr. rom-com from the mid-90s, She's All That, that basically adapted the same thing. And it works still as a concept. And I think there's a way of doing this in a much grander way than a a throwaway um, bad teenage rom-com and being able to update it. And I think you would still evoke a lot of the same feelings. The The songs really haven't aged. And I, I think in a way you could probably keep the songs, just update the time and place and context of everything and actually make it work. I, I think a remake might be in order at some point, And there was talk about it at one point. It, it's just different. But the one part, or there are two different sides to this that, uh, simultaneously age, but don't age well for me. So the avenue of the female empowerment, I think this is one of the stronger female characters that comes through, especially by the end of it. And I think it resonated and was relatable to uh, all three of the women guests that we have on right now. She was strong until she walked back in that door at the end of the movie. That's fair. That In the original play, she does not, and I, I think that is a stronger move, and that, that's why we're going to talk about that yet here in a second. But the other part of this is, is I think the Higgins character becomes worse every year. And the, the more crass and misogynistic and rude, boorish that his behavior becomes, the more we just can't deal with that, that type of attitude. I think that could use a little bit of a rewrite where it's more subtle and it, it's not quite so brash, but then I don't know if it exudes the same point. So that It was done in the movie Pretty Woman. It's sort of the whole same concept, and at that point, he wasn't rude and boorish, and he was kind, but he took... It was the same concept where he took... Not a flower girl, but a prostitute. And he treated her with respect and care and made her into class. 
But Richard Gere so, isn't playing a Higgins character. I disagree. He was until the towards the end when he suddenly had his revelation and decided to help save the company he's going to to uh, uh, take over. All right. Well, we'll save that for our Pretty Woman podcast coming to a, uh, I don't know, streaming service near you. Anyway. <laughs> uh, all right. But uh, who have I not gotten to? I am. Well, you haven't given us your official rating number yet. I did not? No, you didn't no. tell us your number. I gave it a seven. So I, I apologize that I didn't give that. I I thought I'd let it off, but all right. Sarah, what did you have down? I had an eight, eight and a half, actually, because um, this is something that is truly classic. And it, to most people and my age now, this kind of is a trope of, you know, the man recreates the woman or vice versa and turns it into something. But the fact that we're still talking about this and still talking about movies that are this style when the original like type or archetype for this came out in ancient Rome with Ovid, I think says something about its classicness and not just, and then we talk about it in this context of this movie is they've done versions that are similar to this, of this bad character, of this archetypal, you know, bad guy who tries to, you know, help somebody. And in in this, he, he kind of discovers that, yes, he actually is kind of bad. And he does, you know, you can just see the inkling at the end of the movie of him actually starting to open up just a little bit. But the reason the play was written like this bernard shaw wanted to write this as a critique of the um classist problem and was all for suffrage movement and so it was supposed to be about a strong woman and i think it makes it extremely classic especially in the society that we have now where women are much more valued all right uh, certainly not least. Dad, you usually have the most nuanced version of classicness. What did you have down? Well, this is a period piece. And historically, through our 45 shows, when we've had period pieces, we've learned to accept them for what they were, which is a reflection of the time frame. <clears throat> this actually has a duality, which is it was a time piece from the early 19th or early 20th century, excuse me, but it was also a play that was based in the 1950s. And so it doesn't do anything other than ex- or show what attitudes of men were towards women during those two time frames. So, yes, it doesn't age well now, but you have it's not based on what exists now. It's based upon what was taking place in the early 20th century and then to a lesser extent in the 1950s. And to that extent, you have to say that it is classic because it shows exactly how women were treated at that point in time. And so, therefore, I gave it an 8. So that uh, takes us to a 7.3 average for classicness. Dad, this was a movie with some relationship to you. I have to imagine that you're going to be a little bit higher than usual on the rewatchability scale, but you're usually the toughest grader as well. What did you have down? 
Um, I have this as being a 9.5. I was thinking about it, and there's actually, because of my birthday, I was trying to create a list of films that I hadn't seen in a while that I wanted to see. And I thought about it, and I came to the conclusion that there's only a few, uh, maybe a handful of films that would rate a 10. There's a larger list that's a 9.5. This would be the 9.5. It would be rare that I wouldn't uh, take the time to watch at least part of this if I saw it on TV um, as I'm flipping through the channels. But uh, it's probably not one that I'm going to plan necessarily. But as your mother has indicated, over the 32 years of our relationship, it's probably rare that we haven't watched it at least once a year. So to that extent, it's as close to a 10 as I want to give it, except for that very limited group. So 9.5. Allison, this was uh, one that uh, I think this is the first time you've seen it, right? Yes. What did you think for rewatchability? I'd give it a seven if it was on or someone asked me to watch it with, um, you know, if I was at home and dad was watching it, I'd watch it again, but I'm not going to go and search for it and I'm not going to start digging for a copy of it anywhere um, or pull it out for myself. Like, oh, I'm bored and I want something to watch. It's not the kind of thing that I would just pull out. Sarah, what'd you have down? I had an eight and a half. Purely because I do love classic movies. I love musicals. And this was kind of up there with that. It was kind of fun. Something I could turn back to. And something I can definitely see myself in the future going, Oh, you've never seen that? We've got to watch that. Okay. So I I listed as an 8.5. It's one of those that I could turn in or turn on. I mean, uh, you know, when it's cold outside or, you know, you just want something to watch that's fun and comforting. Mom, what do you think? I had an eight for as many times as I've watched and rewatched it. I, yeah, but once a year we want to go and, and pull that out because we enjoy it. And I like the music. I'm not big into musicals. I like them, but I'm not big into them. And yeah, well, the after you watch it, some of the songs stick in your head for like the next two weeks. So if you want to avoid that. But um, yeah, I gave it an eight. I have almost the exact same opinion as Allison. I enjoy rewatching it, but I am almost never putting it on for the sake of putting it on. It is just not one that like easily comes to mind that I'm just putting in to go by. But there are a lot of movies like that for me that I enjoy rewatching that uh, I have no problem on, but I may find once every three to five years. And it's going to be harder to find this one since... Uh, it's not on streaming, but I do have the Blu-ray copy for anybody that still does hard copies. So I gave it a 6.5. I downgraded an extra half a point because of the ending. So that averages out to a 7.9 for us. And uh, so just to recap quickly before we get to audience score, that's a 6.1 for Legacy, 7 for Impact Significance, 6.2 for Novelty, 7.3 for Classicness, 7.9 for Rewatchability, and a 9 for Audience Score, all giving us a 43.5. If nobody has any major um, finishing questions, I'm going to have one that's probably going to take us enough time to carry it over. Does anybody have anything they want to put? Why would she go back? 
that's my final question is why change the ending not not necessarily her motivation because i think that's indicative of how the writers did it it's why change the ending other than it's a musical we're supposed to have a nice clear cut happy ending but even then it still just doesn't fit to me life doesn't always have a happy ending and I'm sorry, the, I lost a lot of respect for her when she went back because she was standing up for herself and saying, I'm a human being and I'm a, I deserve something better than this. And then she goes back again. And because like, he had the one quote where he says, but I, I don't have your soul. She saw something in him you at that moment in time. <laughs> but she immediately undercuts yes, it. With Allison, that's true, but. She was changing him anyway. No, she thought she was, but I'm sorry. You can only have minor impacts on somebody's personality, really. You can have certain changes, yes, but overall that person is who they are, and you can't go back and expect them to change. Yeah, but he changes her. But you're missing the point. She was already that person. He just brought it out of her. She was already like that. that, Because otherwise she wouldn't have even gone to him in the first place if she didn't already have those qualities and that strength about her. Whereas with him, no. You're missing one point, which is she went back, but it was on her terms, not on his. She went back. That's an interesting point. Because she could, because she wanted to, because she liked him. She liked Pickering. She wanted to be there, but she made clear that if she did, it wasn't going to be because of him and what he wanted. It was going to be because of what she wanted. And yet, while I take your point well, I just still don't find it to be honest with how the characters have or carried themselves to this point. It, it just doesn't seem to fit for me. Well, maybe she just fell in love and there is no I don't accounting care. for people's treats taste. If you like that, you don't go back. You leave. Like, Chris, but it was a different time period. But she wasn't married to him. She had no relationship, no connection to go back for. She went back simply because she wanted to, yes. But... Like, if it she had married her or anything, then yes, I could see going back to save that relationship. But there was nothing to save. There was nothing there. Except that was her comfort zone, and it had become her home. She went home. To be abused, in a way. Like, mentally abused. That's not okay. But Pickering was there to... That does not make it Okay. He yeah, said but he was going to be there a few months, Mom. He went should have gone back to India, where he was supposed to be. He came back to v- meet and visit with Higgins to begin with. That They show that in the first scene. Well, and he shows no sign of remorse in the immediate line. At least, you know, in had it been that he was thankful for to show up, you would have seen maybe some gratitude. No, he doubles down on being himself, which shows he has not grown as a character. In other words, he's not deserving of her to come back in the first place. I I just have so many complicated feelings when it comes to that. You can't say that when he's singing, I've grown accustomed to her face. 
he has made the point over and over that he doesn't need a woman in his life, and then he sings that song, which is bearing his absolute soul because yes. he is putting himself out there and saying something that he never in a million years would have said. But and he never it says clear. it to her. He never but, changes. If he really had changed, he would change how he treated her. Okay, you can't take it in the time period that is now where men reflect on their feelings and actually speak what they're thinking. In that time period, you weren't a man if you did that. And who's to say that he didn't treat her absolutely differently when she came back? And he did that to make her feel comfortable. Maybe it was a you know, not in all seriousness, you know, welcoming her back to her home, quote unquote, you know, he does show that softer side of himself. And she saw that too. But a lot of times men married women that they didn't love at the time and learned to love them here. He, he found himself in love with her and it was an uncomfortable feeling for him and not something that he was expecting. And he didn't know how to deal with it because in his mind, he was a confirmed bachelor. So he was doing the best he could. Dad, I'm going to give you the last word on this. The song, um, I've grown a custom of Twerface, when it was on in Broadway, Rex Harrison's wife stood in the wings every night, and he sang that song to her. She was dying of leukemia. And so he would actually choke up while performing the song. And in fact, they took several takes, I guess, doing the, the show or the movie because he kept thinking of her while he was doing that. That is really the epitome of what is going on. He couldn't come out and say, oh, I've been sorry, and I'm, you know, I'm sorry how I treated you. But what he certainly could do is show that he understood that he needs to treat her differently. And I think that that's what came across to her. And that's why she went back. It could have been done the other way. It would have had a more dramatic impact. But I think it's a point of redemption for Higgins' character, and that's why she went back. Well, thank you for joining me, family, uh, and uh, happy birthday to Dad. I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. We are still planning to discuss Apollo 13, starring Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon, and Bill Paxton, directed by Ron Howard, currently on Showtime later this week. So please stick around on this feed for that one. Uh, I think people have overlooked the fact that uh, I do uh, include all of the show notes with a readout of all of our nominees and uh, all of our final words on uh, best lines, best scenes, and and the other uh, as a link uh, included in every episode of the show. And so uh, you just need to click on that from whichever streaming service you're using. You can get full access to all of our uh, different show notes and uh, some other uh, materials that I have published on my personal blog from there. You also can get the link to the full list of the 45 movies that we have reviewed so far. And uh, as we continue to do that, that will be updated with all of the new ones added to the list. Uh, please email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions for us. And we'd just like to uh, let us know uh, what you think of the show. 
The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM.